All right, let's turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. So uh, last year, last year at the uh, first of the year, we, went, we began and went through the entire book of Genesis. So, uh, and it took us quite a while to get through Genesis. This year we started in Exodus, and, and what, what a phenomenal, every book of the Bible is phenomenal. But I just want to really encourage you I want to encourage you to read the scripture. I want to encourage you to not make it some legalistic thing. Some, I, want, I want you to acquire a taste and read the scripture. And maybe you have to start small. That's fine. But if you will consistently begin to read... And don't worry about what you understand. Don't worry about trying to figure everything out. Just, just read it. And I always say this. It's not what you're getting out of the Scripture. It's what the Scripture is doing in you. It's what God is doing in you as you read the Scripture. If you read the Scripture and you're trying to figure out what you're getting out of it, and people tell me this all the time, well, I try reading the Bible, but I just don't understand it. Stop trying to understand it. Just read it. Pray before you read it and ask God to do His work in you through His Word. And if you will consistently do that, I promise you, you will experience breakthrough. It, it'll be just like a gentle rain that begins to soften the ground of your heart and the ground of your life. And before you know it, God will cause life to spring up out of that ground. So here we are in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, what an amazing chapter, what an amazing record of God's work in the earth. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 2. So let's begin there. Follow with me. Exodus chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. 
Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at the burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, present here in this place and in us, that you would enlighten, that you would illuminate this word, this gospel to us, that it would go deep in our hearts, that it would change us and transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. That you would, by the power of your Spirit, help us to be a people no longer conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so here in Exodus chapter 2, there is, there is so much that we could deal with here, so much that we could say. But I want to begin by saying this, that in this chapter we see God take what seems to be improbable, if not impossible, situations and use them for his purpose to bring about his glory. This is not a, a unique theme to Exodus. In fact, it's not an uncommon theme. It's a very common theme. This is what we see God doing. This is how we see God working across the span of created time and history. From the moment God let there be light to that eternal day when the Lamb shall be its light, God is working all things together for good 
to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Those words are penned for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. They were penned by the Apostle Paul, but those words are not a New Testament truth. Those words are a Bible truth. Those words reflect the truth of God that has filled his eternal counsel and his glorious creation. It is your truth in Christ. It is the truth of our God who is the Lord of and the Lord over all things. God is constantly working according to his sovereign will. He is constantly by his spirit in all things preparing his people to walk in his purpose for his glory. The Bible is a book of redemption. Every word on every page communicates redemption to us. And that's important because we are a people who need to be redeemed. I don't care, I don't care who you are. I don't care what the quality of your life has been. I don't care how easy or how hard. I don't care if you've made mostly good choices or if you've made mostly bad choices in your life. I don't care if you feel like you've been a victim of circumstance or you have by your own hand and your own sinful choices created situations and circumstances that seem to be irredeemable. The Bible is a book that communicates God's redemption. God is a redeemer. He has filled His story. He has filled human history. He has filled His Scripture with the good, the bad, and the ugly that has come by the sinful choices of men. It begins right in the beginning when God creates a beautiful and perfect world and puts man in it. And man chooses to rebel against God. And man brings upon the creation sin and death that permeates to the very essence of who we are. You see, our problem, our need for redemption is not just a matter of our behavior. Our need for redemption goes to the very core, the very essence of who we are. And there's a lot of people who feel like because they've lived good lives and made good choices, they're going to be okay. But they are sadly deceived because we're not okay. Because the moment our father Adam sinned, we fell. You say, well, I wasn't there. Yes, you were there. You were there in Adam, and you are a product of Adam, and you were produced a fallen human being. Before you ever made a choice in life, before you ever uttered the, the smallest peep, the smallest cry, you needed a Redeemer. Because your need and my need of a Redeemer has nothing to do with whether I'm making good choices or bad choices. My need for a Redeemer is because I was born in sin and death. 
And until I am, to quote the words of Jesus, born again, I cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so we see that God has written his good news, his gospel. It began with the very beginning words of the scripture. In the beginning, God created. That's good news. Because it tells us from the beginning and before the beginning, this is all about God. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about God. And God purposed in eternity to bring about the redemption of his creation. So let's go through this chapter. and Let's look at some things that, that are very important for us to see. You'll notice in verse 1, verse 1 says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. God created the family and marriage to bring salvation to the world. Plain and simple. God created the family and he created marriage to bring salvation to the world. A man went and took a wife, and she conceived and bore a son. The son of that union was named Moses. And Moses would save his people from bondage in Egypt. The family and marriage is God's external plan, God's eternal plan, to multiply his image and to show his glory in the earth. And this is exactly why the enemy works overtime to destroy the family, to degrade the family. We see it in every sector of our culture. We see it with the battle over abortion. If you don't think it's Accidental. If you think it's accidental that over 50 million babies have been murdered since 1973 legally in America, it's not an accident. It is a purposeful plan of the enemy. The problem is most people don't even realize there's an enemy that's actively working to bring about the destruction It's not a new plan. It's what the enemy did in the very beginning when he came to Eve and said, did God not say? And he took the truth and he twisted it into a lie and man willingly accepted the lie because man willingly wants to be in control of his own destiny. We see it in every aspect of our culture a destruction, a diminishing, a degradation of the family. But yet if we go back to the scripture and we see that God created the family and he created marriage to bring salvation to the world, I think it's not difficult to prove this out. 
Jesus could have come to this earth in any way, shape, or form he wanted to. He is the creator of heaven and earth. But Jesus, the creator, purposefully chose to come to earth by being conceived in the womb of a woman, a daughter of Adam, and birthed into this world the same way every other human being since Adam and Eve have been birthed into this world. Jesus chose the means by which he would come to this world, and he did so, and he, communi com he communicated something very powerful that through the family and through marriage and through the multiplication that is supposed to happen in that context, God would bring about the salvation of the world, and he did. The marriage union gives witness to the mystery that's now revealed. That is Christ and his church. The son of the divine union, Jesus Christ, has saved his people from the bondage of sin and death. And the family and marriage is God's plan. And it is redemptive in its very nature and in its very outworking. I happen to deal with a lot of social service agencies, and I'm not a social worker. I'm not a professional. I work with a lot of licensed professionals who do this for a living and have devoted their lives to it, and I am constantly amazed at what the science and what the surveys and what man is determining that is best and most healthy, and I'm amazed that it absolutely conforms to what the Bible has taught us since the beginning. And it's as if we are just discovering that we've made some horrible mistakes and sent men down the wrong road and the wrong paths, and we've got to get a handle on this because lives are being destroyed. And I'm glad to hear and I'm glad to see that that even secular people are beginning to understand this. And whether they realize it or not, they're actually preaching the gospel. They're actually encouraging and working to conform things to a, a biblical standard, and they don't even realize that. But here we are, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the salt of the earth, the light that is supposed to dispel the darkness we are in the earth and we should know these truths. And this is why it is important not only to know the truth, but to pray and to actively work and contend and stand and fight for what is true. Because it is a matter of our salvation. Verse 3. Verse 3 says that this wife, this mother conceived, she bore a son when she couldn't hide him any longer because there was a decree. Remember from chapter 1, there was a decree. And Pharaoh said, the people, of, uh, the people of Israel are becoming more numerous and more powerful than us. We need to do something before they overcome us. So they put them under hard bondage and then Pharaoh made a rule that every son born, every Hebrew son born was to be killed. 
And he gave instructions to the midwives, abort those babies the moment they're born, terminate them, kill every son, but keep the daughters alive. And the thought was, if we get rid of the sons, then we will over time diminish this nation and they'll just assimilate into us and they will disappear. The only problem is, remember the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and they didn't kill the babies. And this is why when the mother of Moses sees that she can't hide him any longer, she prepares an ark and she puts the ark in the river and Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the ark. For the sake of salvation, this isn't the first time God used an ark to save his people. God once again used an ark to save his people. Think about Noah and his family, who for the sake of salvation was carried in the ark along with the promised seed. Remember the promise? Hebrew, uh, Genesis 3.15? <coughs> God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and the seed of the woman will will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Who is that seed of the woman? Who is that promised seed? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians, it's Jesus. Well, where was Jesus on the ark? He was in the loins of Shem, the son of Noah. You trace the genealogy back, and Jesus descended from the line of Shem. So when God saved Noah and his family, I want you to understand that God saved the world. God saved humanity. Because Jesus, the promised seed, was in the loins of Shem, who was on that ark, who did not perish in that flood. Moses, the deliverer of God's people from Egypt, was carried in an ark on the Nile River. And Moses was himself saved from the waters of the Nile, and he went on to save God's people from their bondage in Egypt. Moses was a type and a shadow pointing us to Christ who would save his people from their sin. God's work has always been a work of salvation. In verses 5 through 10, We see that Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby. She has compassion on the child. And verse 9 says, Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, So here's the picture. <clears throat> Moses' sister is watching. She's obviously an attendant to Pharaoh's daughter. And she sees Pharaoh's daughter take the child have compassion on the child, and then she comes and says, would you like for me to find a Hebrew nurse to nurse this child? Yes, go find one. Guess who she goes and gets? She goes and gets the mother of Moses. She gets the mother's baby. And so Moses' mother gives him up and puts him in the ark and trusts him to who? She didn't entrust him to Pharaoh's daughter. Who did Moses' mother entrust her baby son with? She entrusted him to God. 
She put him in that ark, put him on that river, and she put him in the hands of God. And what did God do? God gave favor, caused the daughter of Pharaoh to have compassion on Moses, takes Moses, and then gives the baby back to the mother, and the mother raises the son until he's old enough, and then brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes the son of Pharaoh. He becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he's raised in Pharaoh's house. He's raised in royalty. At the very height of power in Egypt. By the very man who gave the order for his death. In the house of the very man who ordered his death. You think that's an accident? You think that's just a coincidence? You think that's just a cool way all those circumstances worked out? Not a chance. Here's what we see. We see that God can take the very thing meant for our destruction and use it for our salvation. God established Egypt for His purpose. The enemy used Egypt as an instrument of oppression in an attempt to destroy God's people. You don't think the devil knew that that seed was somewhere among that people and that seed would one day come forth? What was his solution? Stamp it out, kill it, destroy it any way I can, any way, any shape, any form, any way we can do it, we're going to kill and destroy this people. But God was the one who brought all of this about. God was the one orchestrating everything for his purpose and for his glory. The enemy tried to use Egypt as an instrument of destruction, but God established Egypt to multiply and to prepare his people and to show his power and his glory in the earth. And through Egypt, God saved the baby Moses and raised him up to become the deliverer that would one day lead God's people out of bondage, just as God used Egypt to save Joseph, who saved Jacob, who saved Judah. Who's Judah? Now the question is, who is Jesus? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when Judah who wanted to murder Joseph, instead sold him into slavery, Judah had no idea that God was using his cruel act to try to destroy his brother as the very means that he would bring salvation, not only to Judah, that murderous brother, but he would bring salvation to the world because he saved the promised seed. And he used Egypt to do it. And now he's using Egypt again to grow and to multiply and to prepare his people. God can take the very thing meant for our destruction and use it for our salvation. Then in verses 11 through 20, we see that Moses grows up and he goes out to see what's happening with his people because he knew he was a Hebrew. And he sees an Egyptian abusing one of his Hebrew brethren and he kills the Egyptian thinking nobody's watching. 
he goes out the next day and he sees these two Hebrews fighting and he says to the one guy, why are you being so cruel to your companion? And the guy turns on him and says, what, are you going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses realized that his murderous deed was known and he flees in fear. And he goes to the land of Midian and he sits down by a well, the Bible says. And what we see is that God will use our sinful failures. You got any? Do you have any sinful failures in your life? God will use our sinful failures and our greatest fears to bring us to the place of preparation for his purpose. And that's exactly what he did with Moses. Moses flees in fear after committing murder and he thinks he's running away from something, but in reality, God used the very act, the very sinful act of murder, the very fear that he was running because of, and he used it not for Moses to escape from something, but he used it to drive Moses into God's purpose, into the very place of preparation it is God's work of grace that takes our failures and our fears and prepares us for His purpose. God can redeem all things, even our sin, in preparing us for His purpose. God chooses the method, the time, and the place of preparation for His purpose, for His glory. So Moses comes, he sits down at the well, these shepherdesses, these daughters of rule come, these daughters of Jethro and they've got their sheep and their flocks, and they're going to water them at this well. And the shepherds come, the men come, and drive them away. But Moses stands up for them and helps them get their flocks watered, and they get home early. And we see that in this, in this effort of Moses to flee from Pharaoh trying to escape something, God drives him to the very place that God wants him to be because God has provided a place of rest and a place of peace in the midst of his preparation. And this is what God will do for us. God not only uses our sinful failures and our greatest fears to bring us to the place of preparation, but God will provide a place of rest and a place of peace in the midst of our preparation. Moses sat down by a well, a place of rest. He helped the daughters of Jethro. He was invited to their home. He was content to stay with Jethro, and he eventually married one of the daughters. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus utters these well-known words. He bids us, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus bids that you come, that he would give you rest. In John chapter 4, we see the account of Jesus at a well encountering a Samaritan woman. In the middle of the day at noontime, 
She goes at the hottest part of the day because that's the, the time of the day when she is least likely to run into anybody. Well, why would she not want to run into anybody? Well, Jesus exposes why. He says, go and call your husband and tell him to come. And she said, I'm not married. And Jesus said, you speak rightly. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. But Jesus didn't say that in a manner to condemn her. Jesus said that in a manner to convict her and to reveal to her that even for this woman, who maybe the rest of society, maybe her community shunned, maybe they didn't look on her favorably, but Jesus is communicating there is redemption for you. Because you don't need redemption just because of who you are and what you've done, but all humanity needs redemption. God will provide a place of rest and a place of peace. Jesus invited the woman at the well, even in her sin, to drink of the living water and never thirst again. And He has prepared a way for us to enter into His rest. It is in His rest that He is able to quench our thirsty souls and prepare us to walk in His purpose. In verses 23 through 25, it takes us back to Egypt. And it says that there came a time when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, died. And all the men that were seeking the life of Moses passed away. And it says in verse 23, And their cry came up, the children of Israel, their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. God hears the cry of his people. He remembers his covenant. He looks upon them, and he acknowledges them. God's timing does not always correspond to our own. Have you ever noticed that? It can seem as though God does not hear, that He does not remember, that He does not see, that He does not respond. Have you ever been there? But the reality is this, that God is doing much more than we can see or ever perceive. Think of all the children of Israel that died under bondage in Egypt who did not with their own physical eyes see a deliverer who did not experience in their life during their time of visitation on this earth they did not experience physical deliverance from slavery and if we're not careful we could fall into that group of people that thinks God doesn't hear God doesn't see. God doesn't even know. And God certainly doesn't respond because He hasn't for me. But I promise you, He does. He hears. He sees. He responds. He is ever working. He is working far ahead of us. God is not reacting to our situations. See, that's what we do. We react to situations. 
we go through life and life is great and we don't think anything and then boom, something happens and now we're reacting. And now we're trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? This just happened, so now what am I going to do? We spend so much of our life reacting to situations. That's not who God is. You need to understand this, church. God is not reacting to us. God didn't react to Adam's sin in the garden. God already had a plan in eternity to, to, to deal with the sin that he knew would come in the garden. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. We're reactive, but God is proactive. He has from before the beginning ordered all things great and small to work into his eternal counsel, his eternal purpose, and his eternal glory. Our bad and sinful choices belong to us. We make them all the time. They belong to us, but God's grace will swallow those up in his beautiful, redemptive purpose that he has worked in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is the mystery of God and the mystery of his grace. You say, I don't understand that. Stop trying to understand it and begin to receive it. Begin to live in it. Begin to walk in it. Begin to accept it by faith that you and I do not deserve God's love. We do not deserve God's blessing, but he has given it to us in spite of what we truly deserve. We can rest assured that God is truly Lord of all. He is truly Lord over all. This is how God can turn our sadness into dancing. It's how he can take our nights filled with weeping and bring joy in the morning. God is calling to you now. Listen, church. God is calling to you now. He is bidding you come to him. Fall on the rock and allow him to heal your brokenness and bind up your wounds. Come to him and let him prepare you to walk in his purpose for his glory come to him and allow him to reveal to you the fullness of his joy that he so wants you to know that is our God he is a redeemer we are not redeemers we are people in need of redemption. We look at people and we look at situations and we make judgments in the place of God and we need to repent of doing that. And we need to be a people that first of all recognize our own need of redemption. And we need to be thankful that God has extended that redemption to us by his grace. And we need to be thankful and rejoice that God is extending that redemption and that grace to others who are equally undeserving as we are. He invites us. He bids us come. Trust in Jesus.
trust in his grace. Trust in his work. Not yours, but his. You're invited to the table of grace. This is a table built with grace, covered with grace, and filled in abundance with grace. It is not cheap grace. It is costly grace. It is grace so costly that it costs the priceless life of the Son of God. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It is freely given to all who will come to Him in faith, knowing that it is only by His grace. Trust now in Christ and come to His table of grace. Come to eat and drink His bread and His cup. Be filled. Church, I welcome you to come to the table of the Lord. Come to Jesus. Here's my charge to you, church. Do not look at what you have done, but look to Christ and what He has done. Your sins, your failures, and your fears are things to look to only for the sake of repentance. Repent and look to Christ and trust in the work that He has done in the cross. Know that God is working all things together for good to His children. God is using the things meant for your destruction to bring about your salvation. God's plan for His people is always salvation. God has a place of rest for you. Seek Him and enter His rest. God hears. Cry out to Him. God sees. Seek Him. God remembers. You do not forget. God acknowledges you. So you do not deny Him. May the Holy Spirit empower you and embolden you to walk worthy of His calling. May faith rise up in your heart and may His love and joy and peace be multiplied for your good and for His glory. Amen.